We're working through the book of Hebrews, part 35. And what a text we have. We started this, uh, yeah, 35 weeks ago. We're going verse by verse right through the whole book of Hebrews. Sermons are online. You can get notes of past uh, teachings if you missed that or watch them or listen to them, however you like to do it. title this morning is The Power of Christ's Sacrifice from the Foundation of the World to the End of It. The Power of Christ's Sacrifice from the Foundation of the World to the End of It. We're going to study just verses 25, 26, 27, and 28 of chapter 9. Our writer writes, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. If this is your first week hearing this series, the idea is our writer writes to Jewish Christians who have professed faith in Jesus as their Messiah but are in danger because of Jewish people who are coming and trying to turn them back from the new covenant trust in Jesus Christ. They're trying to turn these Christians back into the old covenant keeping of the law, the sacrificial systems. And so our writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians who are on the verge of possibly turning from Christ and going back to old covenant sacrifices. So he's writing about, of course, the high priest in the old uh, tabernacle is what he's writing about. It would apply to the temple as well. Who would once a year, the high priest into the most holy place come with this sacrifice. That's what he's talking about here. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, that's Jesus now, at the end of the ages to put away sin, to put it away by the sacrifice of himself. And then this verse that doesn't seem to fit, like it's such an abrupt change in subject, And just as it is appointed for man, that's us, mankind, once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. That's why he came the first time, Christmas. We're going to celebrate that. Not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And you can see, sometimes when you... This is a very involved passage. And sometimes you get a hint at what a writer is trying to do by looking at the words that get repeated. So you'll notice, offer himself repeatedly, okay? Then he would have to have suffered repeatedly. And then you see some of these contrast words. He has appeared once for all. Just as it is appointed for man once to die. After that comes judgment. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins. 
See? See the repeatedly, repeatedly, once, once, once. He's trying to contrast something here. In just a few verses, in chapter 10, we'll get to these, our writer is going to offer these bright, hopeful words that we all know, a lot of them, in Hebrews 10, where he says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, that's where I got the title for this series, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, who doesn't treasure these words? Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. What beautiful words. For sure, that, Hebrews 10, that's a much prettier text than the one we're looking at in Hebrews 9. This is the kind of text you just read it in a church and people go, amen. You read the text we're looking at in Hebrews 9 and people go, what in the world? But they're related. Our Hebrews 9 text and that beautiful Hebrews 10 text are related as cause and effect. They're related as root and fruit. And it's, and it's the less pretty verses in chapter 9, the more involved verses, if you work them through, they're the verses that, that create this, this assurance of faith and this confidence Or let me say it like this. Without working through the involved logic of our chapter 9 text, you'll have, to find, you'll have to find some hit and miss way to work up feeling the assurance of that chapter 10 text. And the problem with that is, our writer in chapter 10 doesn't present that assurance and that confidence just as some kind of psychological inner tranquility. He, he develops that confidence and that assurance. He does it as a, as a doctrinal insurance, assurance. Uh, it's, a, it's a confidence and an assurance that's built on biblical revelation. So what I'm saying is, this isn't a confidence and an assurance that you just work up as some kind of emotional state. This is a confidence and an assurance that you dig out of a biblical text. Please allow me just to stay with that introductory thought just for a second because it's something that concerns me. This is a growing problem in the body of Christ. Christians are less and less diligent in their study of the scriptures. I'm not talking about their reading of the scriptures. I'm talking about their study of the scriptures. They're less and less engaged, diligent in their study of the scriptures. But they're still more and more anxious to have God just sort of touch and bless their lives. They want to know God, 
without having to do the work of learning about God in his revelation. So, so they confuse grace with laziness. What, what, what they're craving is some kind of a direct, unmediated knowledge of God. A kind of direct, magical touch that will just happen to them while they neglect the appointed means of having their minds renewed and their lives transformed and their worship enlivened. If no one said this to you before, a a deep, prolonged, repeated, aggressively thoughtful digging in the scriptures is God's appointed means for touching and blessing your life. And as Christians become less and less biblically literate, They are unintentionally, I'm sure, but they're losing the ability to know God and to treasure Christ. And and what happens is they will be reduced to kind of pretending delight in God with whatever feelings of love they can pump up, maybe during a worship time. Please don't anybody confuse what I just said. I treasure expressive worship. It should be more expressive, not less expressive. I rejoice in passionate worship. I believe there's not a reason on earth that God would have created us with all of these emotional capacities and then say, and by the way, please set all that aside when you worship me. That makes no sense at all. Whether you're charismatic or Anglican or Presbyterian, that makes no sense. God wants... All of our emotions, our creational beings to be employed in in joyous worship. More emotional engagement in worship, not less. But here's the point. God desires all of the God-given emotions. He wants them engaged in my worship indirectly rather than directly. And what I mean by that is, he desires emotional expression as the effect, rather than the cause. He he wants my emotions stirred up from my understanding of his word, rather than just the beauty of the song. He wants my emotional delight in him to to be tethered to, oh, that's precious what I see right there. Tethered to my understanding of his word. Now remember where I began these ramblings. We read in chapter 10 of this, since we have confidence, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. And the question I asked was, where where does that confidence Where does that assurance come from? And the answer I gave is it comes from digging in and understanding our text in Hebrews 9, 25 to 28. And then I said, then I said, while this chapter 9 text is not as pretty 
as the Hebrews 10 text, it is surprisingly the source. If you do the work, it's, it's the source of the confidence and the assurance that's described in Hebrews 10. So, so in other words, we need the discipline of mining out the gold. We read it this morning. More to be desired are they than gold. Other than ordering it on TV, gold. But when you initially find gold, where do they get it? It's rarely just sitting on the surface, right? You you dig. (laughs) You're not going to get gold without a lot of work. That's the nature of gold. And it's not accidental that the spirit-inspired text says it's, it's like gold. It's like gold. By the way, that shouldn't surprise us. You'll see this actually taught over and over again. I love this little verse in 2 Timothy 2.7. When you read it, Paul writes to Timothy, and look what he says. Think over what I say, for... The Lord will give you understanding. Does that sound strange to you? It's a fascinating little verse, isn't it? It makes us ask, well, so which is it? Does the Lord give understanding, or is it the fruit of our own deep mental thought and work? And the answer, of course, is yes. The the divinely given understanding of the text is given through the human concentration and study of the text. And that's where God starts to work. That's where God starts to work. Here's an illustration. Angel comes to Abraham and Sarah. They're going to have a baby. And they're both really old. Really old. But they're going to have a baby. That's a miracle, right? Now here's my question, and I I don't mean to be indelicate. Did Abraham and Sarah still have to have sexual relationships for her to conceive? Did they? S-E-X. Well, is it a miracle? Well, yeah, it's a miracle. And it came about through normal relations, right? Here you have the miracle of the Holy Spirit coming, taking God's word and saying, oh, this is precious, and he warms it, and suddenly you see something new and fresh and great in Christ, and you you delight in it, and it is sweeter than honey, and it's more precious than gold. I hope you experience that. How does it come? You study. And God does that. Now, if you're visiting with us, do not panic. Point number one. The sacrifice of Christ happened long ago and we should be thankful for the long, silent history since then. 
Nor was it to, 9.25, offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters holy places every year with blood not his own. So out of the many similarities, we've been studying them for over half a year. Between the high priest's sacrifice for the sins of the people in the Holy of Holies and Christ's sacrifice on the cross, now our writer is going to stress something very different. It's a contrast now. That old covenant sacrifice, that sacrifice by the high priest in the Holy of Holies, that one that was picturing the meaning of Christ's coming sacrifice, our text says it was offered for the people annually, every year. Then he says Christ's sacrifice on the cross well, it was offered over 2,000 years ago, and it's never been repeated. So that's a bare description of the facts, all right? But that's not studying the facts. Our writer means for all of us to, to look at that comparison and like an orange to, to squeeze, squeeze the meaning out of it. And you do that by asking questions. Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing that Jesus died on the cross over 2,000 years ago, and it's been a long, silent period of history since then. Does that make faith in his sacrifice, does that make faith easy, or does it make it hard? That's quite a question. Certainly in one sense, it makes your faith and mine more difficult. Um, not one of us, I don't imagine, has ever witnessed a crucifixion. Has anyone even been crucified in the last century? I mean, I, I just... We never saw our Lord die. So what that means is, there's, there's, no, way, there's no way I can place trust in the cross of Christ through an act of memory. Oh yeah, I was there, I remember it. We... we None of us remembers it. So, so Paul must mean something else when he says in 1 Corinthians 11, he quotes Jesus, this do in remembrance of me. But it doesn't mean remembering like you remember what you did last night. Think about it. I'm, I'm staking my sole hope for eternal glory on an event I have never seen, never witnessed, and can't remember. Is that good? So the struggle of faith is obvious in one sense. And yet, strangely, that's not the way our writer comes at it. Our writer doesn't treat this long gap of history as a bad thing. In fact, he treats it as the most wonderful feature of our Lord's death. And here's his spirit-inspired logic. That long silence over 2,000 years since the cross of Christ, it doesn't mean his death is currently irrelevant. It means it's permanently effective. And you have to see it that way. Think about the difference in these sacrifices. Think, first of all, the high priest into the Holy of Holies... 
once a year. And I would come and I'd bring my animal. The high priest would come and he'd offer that sacrifice. And because of what God knew Christ would accomplish on the cross, even though I wasn't changed one bit, I'm treated as though my sin is atoned. And I feel good. And then when it's all over, I go home. The sins of the past year are covered. But I sin on my way home. What about the first sin that happens after the sacrifice? Well, we're starting a fresh tab. Fresh tab of standing guilt. Real guilt, not pretend guilt. Before a holy, just God gets opened up the very next day. So, so the sinner's conscience, it's relieved only until the next sin manifests itself. And then I got, well, I got to wait for next year. This is where the nature of Christ's single sacrifice 2,000 years ago, this is why our writer says it sparkles. Because it is, it is perpetually effective. By definition, it is unrepeatable. And the New Testament, when you look for this, the New Testament just seems to want to drill this down into our understanding. Look what Peter says. Here's great words. Christ also suffered, see this? Same word, eh? Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. Once he suffered. Just once. So bring this understanding to the sacrifice of Christ. Treasure. Treasure the long gap between the cross and where you live today. This is not its weakness. This is its glory. Our writer can't wait to unpack this a bit more. Point number two. The power of Christ's sacrifice reaches from the foundation of the world to the end of it. You see this in 926. So you've got to dig for it and think about it. You jump into the middle of a sentence. He says, Christ's sacrifice isn't like the one that the high priest did every, every year. If it was, then he, that's Jesus, would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. As it is, he has appeared once for all. And then this phrase, at the end of the ages. What? Is this not working? I knocked it out. You're blaming me. So all that time I was doing this work, you guys weren't seeing a thing? This is really hard, you know. I got to talk and draw. How long was it like that? Okay. Did I show you this? For then he, that's Jesus, would have to suffer repeatedly. And I said these two phrases. The foundation of the world... And then at the end of the ages. It's interesting, these time words. It's a very involved kind of a verse. So the he is Christ. 
And then the next important phrase is, since the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Why does our writer move from the event of the cross to the the time of the foundation of the world? The, The two don't seem related, but they are. We remember then our writer's main point about the unrepeatability of Christ's sacrifice, how it transcends its own brief moment in time. And what we're going to witness in this verse is the way our writer takes that truth, the power of the cross beyond its own moment in time, and he pushes it right back into the past, and then he pushes it right into the future. That's what he's doing now to show all those people who lived during Old Testament times and and those babies in the nursery and people who aren't born, and if, and if it's another thousand years before Jesus comes back, all those people as well, that they're all affected by the one-time sacrifice of Christ. Okay, that's the point that he wants to make. The implication of that phrase, since the foundation of the world, is clearly this. Sin problem is not a new problem. It's been around since then, since the creation of the world, since the fall of Adam and Eve. And our writer's point is, if the atoning power of Christ's sacrifice had a quick expiry date, like that one-year sacrifice, if it had a quick expiry date, like that annual high priest sacrifice under the Old Covenant, then Christ, he would have... He would have needed to be sacrificed many times since the foundation of the world, over and over again. And the whole point here is to glory in the unfolding of our writer's argument. Sin was here since the foundation of the world. Equally implied, by the way, the Son, God the Son, was present from the foundation of the world. And yet, and yet, there's still only one effective sacrifice for sin. So, what he's saying is, Christ's death on the cross, he's writing to these Hebrew Christians that are being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. Okay? Remember that. And What he is saying, our writer is saying, you don't understand. The only thing that allowed any of those sacrifices to even be treated as effective is that the sacrifice of Jesus Don't desert faith in Jesus because that's the sacrifice that was effective right back to the foundation of the world. There are no other sacrifices you can trust in. And then he says in 9.26 that phrase from the foundation of the world and then he says, but as it is he has appeared shall I clean this up for you a little bit? Look at that. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Think about that phrase for a minute, the end of the ages. We know it doesn't mean the end of time. It can't mean just that because our writer writes as one living in the end of the ages. So the end of the ages actually begin with the coming of Christ. The end means the the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. All those ages that they were looking forward to and right up to the end of the world. It's, it's exactly what Paul meant in Galatians 4.4 4 when, he, when he said, but when the fullness of time had come. Same idea. 
God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Point number three. The sacrifice of Christ for sin is no more repeatable than death is repeatable. So now he's going to wrap up his argument. In a verse that looks like it doesn't fit. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, transcendental meditation isn't true, folk. You don't go around and around, you die once. (laughs) Well, what about after that? Well, we're told. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, he's going to make a comparison, having been offered once, so what we're meant to see is, he's making a comparison, people die once, Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't die 15 times, right? He just died once in his full humanity. He died. So he's, he's, he's making that link. Offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So the unrepeatable nature of Christ's sacrifice is compared to physical death of the human race. But there's another fact here. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so just as surely, though not as visibly, but just as surely as death happens to everyone, then there'll also be a time of judgment after this death. And that leads to his second to last point. Point number four. It is the very nature of Christian faith. I want to take a minute with this. If if you don't understand this, your Christian life is going to be a struggle. Your whole Christian life, it's going to be a struggle. It is the very nature of Christian faith that it looks in two directions to events it has never witnessed. You see that in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you take 27 and 28 together, here's what you get. If you go back to the foundation of the world, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is for those sins. And if you go right up to the second coming, generations not born yet, Christ's sacrifice is the sacrifice for those sins. So in other words, the sacrifice of Christ effectively reaches back in time before Christ died, and it reaches ahead in time long after Christ died. So it's just as effective for people before it and after it as it was right at that moment in history when he died on the cross. But think about that and what it means. It means, what percentage of the world's population do you think stood and watched Jesus die? 
Nobody knows, but here's what we all know. It would be, it would be infinitesimally small, right? It would be a tiny, tiny, minuscule fraction of people who were actually there watching Jesus die. 99.9999999% of the global population never saw it. God has so set the cross in the center of history so that all humanity would have to tap into its power by faith rather than sight. He designed it that way. So so we share, in a way, we share the same kind of faith as those who died under the old covenant in this respect. We have more revelation than they did. But all those heroes of the faith, they're mentioned in chapter 11. But they did not actually witness the source of their redemption and hope. And you and I weren't there, and so we can't reach back to the cross through memory. And so what I'm getting at is is this. Many Christians lose heart because, because they never got used to the terms of the Christian faith when they started out. When you start the Christian life, you're venturing on a walk of faith. Faith is the fundamental condition of following a Christ who is now physically absent from our sight. And what our writer is emphasizing, it's to comfort us. What our writer is emphasizing in this text is this is not, this is not a new battle, the battle of faith. That it was always the fight of faith. From the foundation of the world, God's people had to offer sacrifices that they knew didn't resolve the sin problem in their heart. Why did they keep doing it? Hebrews 11, faith. Faith. Hebrews 11, look at what it says in Hebrews eleven thirty-nine. So Christ having, sorry, wrong Wrong slide. This one. All these, these wonderful people that we admire so much, though commended through their faith, read read this with me out loud, did not receive what was promised. They never saw Jesus die. They never saw Jesus die. Hoped in it. Trusted in it. They never saw it. And then, and then, we're going to celebrate it soon, Christ came that first Christmas. But we, we make the church look pretty, that it's easy to romanticize those times. When Jesus walked this earth, when Jesus walked this earth, most people didn't embrace the kingdom that he offered. And you know why they didn't? He didn't look like a world's redeemer. <laughs> he was despised. <laughs> And rejected. Why? It takes faith to trust in Jesus. Now Jesus is ascended. And he's absent from our physical senses. And the entire church. We don't see him. And the Apostle Peter says. People will constantly miss the meaning of his, of his absence. They will say. Where? Where is the promise of his coming? And then the time gap. Ever since 
the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were. Nothing's different. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. You Christians, oh, he's up there in heaven. Where? Where? Said he was coming. Where is he? Everything's been the same. Nothing changes. What, What kind of pie in the sky do you guys have? This is the venture of faith. It is fully weighted with solid reason and history. We know Jesus died and revelation, the meaning in his word. But it was never intended. God never intended our trust in the cross to be the same as physical sight. The walk of faith was never designed that way. If you miss God's plan here, you will constantly beat yourself up for being a terrible Christian simply because you never understood at the beginning of your Christian walk that you always have to work your way through the walk of faith in an absent but soon coming Lord. Last thing I want to say, point number five. There are no saving alternatives to obedient trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ Where I get that is in a verse we're going to be studying soon. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. But look what he says. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. No other sacrifice for sin. No other sacrifice is offered. No other sacrifice has ever been offered. No other sacrifice will be offered. Everyone in this room, before you leave today, everyone in this room needs to come to terms with the fact that there is no other hope remaining outside of Christ. No other sacrifices have been offered. There are no replacements. Nothing needs repeating. It is a finished work. There is no other remedy for sin or hope in the face of divine justice after we die... No hope remains outside of Christ. Trust in, trust in his shed blood. Trust in his shed blood. Why? Because there's no other sacrifice for your sins. There are other teachers. There are other religions. There are other books of morals. There are other gurus. But I'll tell you what, there, there's no more of, and it's this. There's no other sacrifice for your sins. Never, ever abandon your faith in the one eternally effective sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Everyone said? Let's pray.